This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Adam Bucko. He is an activist, spiritual director to many of New York City's homeless youth, and co-author of Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation, and The New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. Adam, you've had an amazing life. You're doing uh, incredible work in New York, and uh, we're very happy that you took the time today to come and speak with us. Well, thank you so much for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Adam, uh, this is Phil. Um, Maybe we can begin by giving our listeners uh, a sense of who you are and your, excuse me, your remarkable uh, path to uh, the work you're doing now. Uh, You started out in Poland. Why don't we um, begin there and just give us a brief overview of how you uh, came to your work. Yes, so I, I grew up in Poland. I was born in 1975. Uh, so that was really at the peak of the communist regime uh, in Poland. And uh, I grew up in a totalitarian country. Uh, early on in my life, I realized that basically growing up in Poland, I had two choices that I could make, two choices that were available to me. One was to become an alcoholic, which a lot of my friends did, and the other one was to become an activist. And, you know, because the situation was was so hopeless, uh, there was violence in the streets, uh, I was growing up during the state of emergency, which mean, meant that, you know, there was a police hour, a curfew, you couldn't even uh, go outside after a certain time, and people just felt hopeless. But there was one thing in Poland at that time uh, that uh, that was incredible, and that was the Polish Catholic Church uh, at that time, not so much now. Uh, churches at that time were um, the only three places where we could go and articulate our dreams and talk about what matters and envision the future uh, that uh, reflected some of our deepest longings. And so you know, early on, my activism was connected to this sense of faith and spirituality, and as a kid, I was inspired by two Polish priests. Uh, Both of them advocated nonviolence. Both of them were these kinds of Gandhian figures in Poland. Unfortunately, also, both of them uh, were killed by the regime. Mm. Uh, One of them was my parish priest. And so early on, you know, I knew that I wanted my life to go in a very specific direction. I wanted to be connected to to faith and God that I experienced uh, as a child, but I also knew that saying yes to God meant saying no to everything that violated God's love in the world. Uh, and then finally, I also knew that people who make that choice, that there could be consequences like for those two Polish priests. And so that was really what what mm-hmm. gave me my orientation in life, you know. Uh, and then you went to India. Yes, uh, first I came to the U.S., you know. Uh, my, my family decided that we will come to the U.S. as undocumented immigrants, trying to find, uh, you know, trying to look for a better life, so to speak. 
And uh, we did come to New York City, mm. and for me, I was still 17 years old. You know, we didn't speak any English. We had no contacts. You know, my my father came here before us, and he came with $50 in his pocket. And someone, a friend of a friend of a friend, agreed to pick him up from JFK. Um, and somehow it worked out. Uh, and so when my family, the rest of my family, joined my father, you know, it was a very traumatic experience for me mm-hmm. to be in a new country at, at at the time when you kind of think you know everything and you know what your life should be. And so as a result of having some difficulties with assimilating and experiencing uh, also what I would now call a post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, from all the stuff that I experienced as a child, really witnessing the revolution and seeing some of my friends, you know, uh, dying and all that stuff. And so, so I decided to go to a Hindu monastery as a result of, you know, the advice that I got from a counselor that I was working with. And eventually that took me to India. My goal was to become uh, a monk, a sadhu, and to dedicate my life to God. But uh, right after arriving in India, I met a homeless child. Mm-hmm. And that kind of changed everything, changed the whole trajectory of my life, you know. Right. Uh, Adam, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, early in your life in Poland, uh, the Catholic Church was a big influence. And in 1970, you were born in 75, in 78, Pope John Paul uh, became the first Polish Pope, Pope John Paul II. And, and uh, uh-huh. what type of influence did he have on you and the whole uh, culture of spirituality in Poland at that time? Well, so, you know, so he didn't really have uh, that much of an influence uh, on me, even though, I mean, he was very present in Poland as a kid. You know, I went to mm-hmm. see him when he came to Poland on one of his pilgrimages. He was very present in Polish culture, like even when I think of my teachers, I remember my Polish teacher uh, in, you know, in high school was a student of his. So she would tell us stories, you know, when she went to college and he was her professor. And lots of people would go to Vatican and meet with him because he was Polish, you know, there was a way in, uh, so to speak. Um, he did, however, you know, when he came on his first trip to Poland, there was this dramatic thing that he did. He got off the plane and kissed the ground. Uh, and that, you know, really gave Polish people a permission to take it to the streets. Um, and so when he came to Poland for the first time as a Pope, you know, I think millions took it to the streets. And that was the first, I think, mm-hmm. uh, big sign that, um, that you know, uh, whatever is emerging there is bigger than than what the communist country, you know, what the regime, what the government is able to control. Now, I also mentioned that, you know, that was the church then. The church, unfortunately, once the system collapsed, you know, the church um, essentially started replicating the totalitarian regime, and so many of us left the church at that time, because, you know, the moment the, the communist party um, disappeared, the church was trying to replace that and use similar tactics to control people and to tell them who to vote for and etc. And just one note on the Pope, you know, um, he definitely played a very important role in, in, in the liberation that took place in Poland, but at the same time, when we review his, his record as a whole, you know, um, he also 
helped to kind of damage and even destroy liberation theology movement in Latin America, um, you know, and a lot of other things. So uh, I kind of want to acknowledge that as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Adam, um, at a certain point, you returned to the U.S. from India and um, began working with homeless young people. Now, um, a lot of organizations and individuals do wonderful service work with the homeless. Um, What is different about what you do, and what drove you in the beginning to begin that work? So, you know, as I mentioned, when I got to India, my dream was to be in a Himalayan Hindu-Christian hermitage outside of Rishikesh, and to kind of, you know, following the footsteps of people like Father Beat Griffiths and Swami Abhishekananda and others. Um, but after meeting a homeless kid in the streets of Delhi, things changed for me, and as a result, uh, I ended up at a different kind of an ashram, a Christian ashram located in the slums outside of Delhi, um, started by a Dutchman. Uh, his name is Tom Baba. And he mentored me, and there I really discovered um, a new aspect of my spirituality. You know, God who incarnate him, incarnated him or herself um, in the midst of this community that this person gathered, this community of broken people rescued from the streets of Delhi, dying of AIDS, and etc. And so, you know, I only stayed there for, for, for a few months, and I got really sick, and, you know, I kind of... Um, it was an excellent training living there as a monastic and working in the streets of Delhi, but eventually, you know, my, my calling, my vocation brought me back to the U.S. I, at first, when I came back to the U.S., worked for traditional organizations that worked with homeless youth, but very soon I realized that kids were getting lost, uh, you know, and that they were falling through the cracks of the system. I remember this one specific situation of meeting a homeless girl, you know, outside of a sketchy hotel in the middle of the night, and that was my job. Um, my, my, my outreach partner and I, uh, that's what we did. We hung out at night, you know, and looked for kids on the streets trying to become part of their street fabric, and when they were ready to take them, um, you know, into a shelter and give and provide them with some help. And so this girl approached me and she said, you know, can you help me? And 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 it took just a few moments to discover what was, to realize what was happening. She was prostituting outside of this sketchy hotel. And inside of that hotel were her two small kids, you know, and sleeping uh, with her tent. And, and so... You know, she said, can you help me? And, you know, I realized quickly what will happen if, 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 if I, uh, you know, um, take her to the shelter. Her kids would be taken away from her and immediately mm-hmm. uh, she would be told to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's how the system is organized. The system is organized around employment. And I think this idea probably goes back to Reagan when... Uh, you know, the understanding of homelessness was basically that, you know, you become homeless when you lose a job, and, and so you can't pay for your apartment, so all you need to do is just get a job, save money, and then again you will be back on your feet. And so, you know, that's what would happen. She would be pushed into a minimum wage job, 
she, 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 she would stay in a shelter for a few months and then would be pushed out. And then within a few weeks, she would be back on the street, but by then she would most likely be over 21, which means that she couldn't come back to the youth system of homeless services, which means that statistically it would look like she was a success story, but she was. Right. Mm. And so, so, you know, we realized that that system was flawed because it didn't address all the pain and trauma that the kids experienced. It also you know, just push them into minimum wage jobs and, and those jobs would never uh, give them a life that they needed. And so we wanted to do something different. We wanted to focus on helping those kids to heal from their trauma and also help them to find their gifts, their talents, and then build their lives around those talents. And that's how my friend Taz Tagore and I started the Reciprocity Foundation. And in the process of that, we discovered that, you know, the best methods of helping people to find their calling, helping people to find their gifts, the best methods are the methods found in our contemplative traditions. Things like spiritual direction, things like contemplative prayer, things like a lot of alternative methodologies that now are absorbed by the mainstream, like acupuncture and qigong mm-hmm. and, and yoga. And so we essentially created a program that has all the tools that we used to heal ourselves, you know, and the tools that worked for us. And as a result, emerged this organization called the Reciprocity Foundation that now serves about 300 kids a year that is located near Port Authority and Times Square um, uh, in New York City. And that helps kids to rebuild their lives and to reconnect them with their sense of self, to reconnect them with their gifts, and give them tools to take those gifts into the world and build good lives. Right. It's very, very inspiring to hear what you're saying. And, and I know uh, I'm from Jersey City and, and uh, Phil is from Brooklyn originally. So I, I spent a lot of time going through the Port Authority area. And I know it's better now <laughs> yeah. but how rough that area can be. And in, in my whole life, I, I saw homeless people, homeless kids. Uh, people that have runaways, all sorts of things, and to know that you're there helping them is, is very inspirational. And, and uh, we want to mention at the end of the show today uh, how people can find out more about you and, and, and how to help. But let me ask you this. Uh, you touched upon it. You went to a, a Christian Hindu monastery in, in, in India, and then you're connected to the contemplative uh, tradition in, in Catholicism. And uh, Phil and I are somewhat familiar with that. We, we know... Uh, uh, Thomas Keating, and I, I, I've had the pleasure of dealing with some of these folks. What I'm curious now is, what spiritual practices did you learn that and, and, and utilize in, you know, uh, not being a monk, uh, but utilizing those uh, programs, those spiritual techniques for self-development in your work, outreach work with homeless youth, and how do you introduce these different programs or different technologies for spiritual development uh, to the uh, young people that you work with? So, you know, so uh, uh, first of all, I'm part of this movement called New Monasticism, uh, and it's a movement that's been kind of emerging for the past 10 years. And it's essentially a movement that helps people to make a monastic-like commitment and at the same time live in the world in the context of perhaps having a family, in the context mm-hmm. of having to make a living. Um, uh, so, so this is a movement that combines contemplation and action 
um, prayer, with work for social justice, and etc. And so, you know, when I got started on my on my journey, that movement was not around. We kind of had to invent it as a result of our work with people like Father Thomas Keating, M.I.T. Fox, Andrew Harvey, and, 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 and others, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, what did I discover? I discovered a rhythm of life uh, that is very much a very similar rhythm uh, to, 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 to the rhythm that, that, that people have in monasteries. I just had to translate it to be able to essentially have that rhythm, you know, this rhythm in the world. And so I have daily practices um, and that, that I practice, and, 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 and those practices inform how I can be present with our homeless kids. And I teach some of those practices to the kids, you know, um, uh, and I teach them not in a very traditional setting, obviously. So a lot of our practices start with, you know, learning how to be present to each other, learning how to hold with all of our beings questions like what breaks your heart and what makes you truly alive, learning then how to go into that state of receptivity and listening and allowing, you know, what Father Thomas Keating calls the divine therapist to do the work of healing uh, on us. Um, And so Reciprocity Foundation has lots of those practices. And most of our young people who come to Reciprocity uh, end up uh, doing contemplative practice and loving it and asking for more of it, you know. And my co-founder is a Buddhist, so a lot of our methodologies are kind of a blend of the Christian monastic tradition and and the Buddhist tradition. Very good. Um, Adam, just to clarify, uh, in my understanding, um, your your, uh, Reciprocity Foundation is not a residential facility. Is that correct? Yes. We work with kids who live in homeless shelters and residential facilities in all the boroughs of New York City. And we're more of a day center, um, and we also have programs in most of those shelters. So you have outreach. You go to the shelters, uh, you or your uh, volunteers, your staff, whatever, however it's organized, but there's also a physical location. Yeah, there's in, in a physical midtown. location, and there are reciprocity hours in mm-hmm. most of the shelters, or like a reciprocity day. In each shelter, it differs. Um, and so, uh, you know, our programming is part of the shelter's programming. And in addition to that, for some of the deeper work, kids come to our center where we, you know, cook vegetarian meals together. They receive healing. They work on some of their deepest, you know, things and, 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 and can experience both healing, but also learn strategies for translating some of their talents or interests into into career, into sustainable mm-hmm. life. Uh, Adam, could you give us a, an example of somebody you might have worked worked with recently, or in the last, you know, a uh, couple of years? That a real success story about, I, uh, you know, somebody uh, came to your attention. You worked with them, and through your uh, spiritual teachings and uh, practical knowledge that you give these kids, you turn their lives in a better direction. Yeah, so you know, one example, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to mention the name because of confidentiality, mm-hmm. but someone who, who came to our center, who um, soon after coming to our center discovered that he was 
diagnosed with HIV, who struggled a lot, you know, um, and, 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 and got HIV as a result of being raped. So, um, uh, you know, so we focused at first on healing uh, and a lot of kind of alternative therapies that allowed him to essentially uh, find a place within, within, within himself that allowed him to just kind of develop a new trust in life and God and etc. At the same time, worked with the medical establishment, connecting him to proper uh, treatments that he needed for his HIV. Um, in the process of that, he also uh, met a mentor who was operating a yoga program in New York City. That person kind of adopted him as a result. He started at first volunteering, then working um, at, a, at, a, at a yoga studio, eventually becoming trained as both a dancer and also a yoga teacher and a wellness uh, teacher. And eventually he was able to um, uh, get to a place where, where, where once he got well, once he kind of, um, you know, took care of, of all of the issues that he needs to take care of psychologically and physically and etc. Uh, now he's a teacher of, of dance and wellness who, 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 who teaches in, 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 in New York City shelters and mentors other kids in addition to that is an advocate for 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 for, 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 for and, and, and a speaker um, who, who works with kids who are newly diagnosed with HIV. And so to me that's very inspirational, you know, yeah. that this person mm-hmm. was able to essentially turn his pain into something that became his gift to the world. Fantastic. Great story. <laughs> Is that um, fairly common that people who go through the program and transform their lives and get their get their lives together will come back and volunteer? And and along those lines, it sounds like you have a very um, uh, extensive networking arrangement. Do you have people who are practitioners in different areas of healing and counseling and and um, contemplative practices, so forth, who volunteer their time? Yes, so first question, you know, it is very common, and that's actually the final goal of our program, Mm -hmm. for kids to come back or to start their own initiatives. Uh, Because our goal is not just to enable them to be successful, but but really to become change makers, Mm. to go back to their communities and, 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 you know, start changing this world of ours one person at a time. Uh, in terms of the network, very early on, we realized that our work is out of the box, you know, which means that if we want to contain, if we want to maintain the uniqueness of our work, we really have to, um, you know, accept that that we probably will not be getting government contracts and etc. Et I mean, we could, but but we chose not to because that would requ- those would require us to change our programs mm-hmm. and all of a sudden start training kids to, security, to become security guards. You know, Now, it's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing to train kids to become security guards, but that's not what we wanted to do. And so uh, we realized that our budget is not going to be huge. Uh, and as a result, early on, we developed a model where we decided to be a network-based organization, Mm -hmm. which means that in addition to the people who work at Reciprocity, full-time, we also have a network of a couple of hundred people in New York City, leaders from different industries, holistic practitioners, teachers, uh, spiritual leaders, um, 
who are part of our extended family. And so, for example, it's it's a very common thing to see, you know, when there's even like a spiritual teacher coming through New York City that in addition to doing their public program, they would come to reciprocity to also work with our kids, people like Mirabai Starr or Charles Eisenstein, mm-hmm. who in addition, you know, always kind of tend to stop by to, to also work with our kids. And I think that's a wonderful thing because... Uh, as a result, we were able to kind of uh, have this almost like a city-wide campus, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, where kids can get access to people that maybe even college students can't, can't mm-hmm. have access. Right. Adam, I wanted to go back to your time in India and that initial experience you had a, with a homeless child that changed the direction of your life. Can you t- tell us what that experience was like? You know... Um, I went to India after reading all the books about yogis and, and uh, you know, I felt like I was going home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is that when I arrived in Delhi, uh, it, was, it was a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, when I arrived, you know, like in the middle of the night, because usually those planes get there right. really late. Um, and I remember just leaving my hotel and, and, and taking a walk around the New Delhi train station, and all of a sudden there was this little girl, you know, her face burned with cigarettes, just skin and bones, who came after me, took my hand, and just started walking with me like that. Um, And, you know, I didn't know what to do. I, like many of us who go to India, we're always told, you know, don't give any money to beggars, because they will never leave you alone. You know, those guys make so much money, it's all a scam, you know all kinds of things, but all of a sudden there I was with this little child holding my hand. Uh, and to me, the only thing that I can say is that like, it felt like I fell apart, fell into pieces, and something happened to me, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just an experience like I've never had. Mm-hmm. And, and deep down I knew that whatever that call was of that child, that I needed to answer it. And so the next day, I called a friend of mine whom I knew from Europe, Tom Baba, who was this kind of a monk who had an ashram for kids like like the one that I met. Uh, he was a very kind of colorful character in Europe. He was an artist, you know, in the 70s and a drug dealer and had this kind of a big uh, you know, most of his friends died of hepatitis, and, mm-hmm. and 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 at one point he lost everything, and moved into a basement. Someone would bring him food once a week, and and at some point after a year or so, he had a religious experience where he saw Jesus, and that um, you know led him to becoming a fundamentalist Christian, who then went to India to convert people to Christianity, but what happens in India, as it normally does, India converted him huh. into a new kind of a Christian, <laughs> and, in, and more in the tradition of Father B. Griffiths, you know, and he saw a dying person on the streets of Delhi, he picked up that person, took him into a room that he was renting, and eventually that grew into a village, um, this kind of a monastic establishment uh, located in the slums outside of Delhi. Hmm. And so I called him, and he knew the kid that I met, and one thing led to another, and I felt deep in my heart that I was called to move into that community and to work with them, and that's what I did. Interesting. Adam, in the um, 
the work you do now, I'm curious about the uh, nature of the, the young people you work with. Could you break down the demographics? Is it mostly boys, mostly girls? What's the age group? Are they coming from uh, families where they were abused? Uh, how, how, to what extent are drugs involved? So it differs, you know, I mean, most of the young people that I work with are youth of color. About 40% of them identify as LGBT. Many of them were kicked out of their homes mm. by their religious parents because of their sexual orientation. About 20% of the kids that I work with are HIV positive. Why do kids become homeless? For many different reasons. It's not always as a reason of poverty. For example, with a lot of kids who uh, who identify as LGBT, uh, they don't necessarily come from poor families, but mm-hmm. they come from fa- families that, 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 that have a problem with their sexual orientation. Then another group is a group of kids who are aging out of the foster care system, when they age out of the foster care system, they're simply thrown out without any skills for living, mm. for, for, for being able to survive. Then there are those kids who ran away because of their abusive uh, situations at home. And, and then finally, you have kids who come from poor families who are simply not able to take care of them mm. uh, financially. And, you know, lots mm-hmm. of kids come to the big city like New York or Los Angeles um, believing that they will be able to uh, pursue their dreams here. And then, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Port Authority, many of those kids arrive on one of those buses. And Port Authority is not a very nice place. There are lots of sketchy characters, pimps, um, who are just waiting there to, 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 to catch those kids and promise them things that, um, you know, that of course are all a lie. Um, and slowly, step by step, they're initiated into into the street life, and then it's very difficult to uh, to get to them. Mm. Well, uh, Adam, uh, there is many many ways for one to develop spiritually, and certainly uh, one way is uh, you know going into a monastery, becoming a monk, learning the uh, technologies and techniques of spiritual growth that uh, that monks uh, do in different religious traditions spiritual traditions have, but uh, it also uh, it seems to be uh, uh, a way to develop spiritually is to serve those in need. And, and, how, and it seems like you've combined the two. You, you've gone inward in your life to develop yourself spiritually, but in your outward uh, activities, you are out serving others. And do you see those working together, your, your, your meditations or whatever you're doing, in combination with your service for your own spiritual fulfillment? Yeah, for me, there's no contradiction. You know, I initially needed to go into the depths of my practice, but uh, the truth is that I only really discovered the presence of of God in my life once I started working with homeless youth. Um, You know, I I was able to show up for those kids because of my contemplative practice, just as if I showed up for, let's say, centering prayer, Mm -hmm. being there with them, you know, um, in this state of receptivity and listening, you know, witnessing their pain without any kind of buffers and protective mechanisms, uh, accompanying them into the depths of their pain and breaking with them, and then 
there was always that discovery that once we break, there's that presence of loving God who's, who's there, you know, always ready to do the work of healing on us and use whatever we have to to help to 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 to, to do something through us in the world, you know. And so for me, that became that experience became my real prayer. And so now there's no um, contradiction for me between contemplation and action. In fact, action is contemplation and vice versa. And that's really what we're now advocating in this new monastic movement, you know, uh, how to essentially live that kind of a life, how to have the depth and the seriousness of the monastic commitment, but at the same time be in the world, you know, because what we need, I mean, we need a spiritual revolution, we need, uh, you know, we can't afford to hide contemplatives uh, in our comfortable monasteries, we need people on the streets, we need warriors for justice and peace and ecological sustainability, who who can bring that kind of love, that kind of depth, that kind of energy to, 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 to our world, you know? Very good. Um, Adam, could you explain a little bit more about the new monasticism, um, um, the monasticism part of it? Uh, people think, of obviously, of monastics as uh, uh, renunciates who are uh, divorced from the world. Uh, so one aspect of the new monasticism is obviously engagement and service. What about the monastic part of it? That usually means living in community, uh, being uh, without family, celibate, and so forth. What are the sort of uh, standards of the monastic part of the new monasticism? So the way that we define monastic, we actually take Father Thomas Kidding's definition. And his definition of monasticism is absolute commitment to the transformative process in God. Mm. And so that simplifies it for us, you know, because then we can look at the uh, the monastic commitment, especially in terms of practices, in terms of the orientation in life, and translate that into the world, you know, uh, and, and bring it into the world. So in our new monasticism, we don't advocate celibacy, even though some people choose to be celibate, but there are plenty of people who are married, who are in relationships. Uh, and we also believe that, you know, what do we do these practices for? We do these practices um, to essentially uh, become available um, uh, so, so, so we can be used by God uh, to do the work of healing uh, in the world, you know? And, and so, 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 so that's essentially the core of, of what new monasticism is. In my own life, you know, I, I, I started this community called HAP Community, um, and it's growing now into a network of communities, and, and those communities are really kind of based on the tradition of Father Bede Griffiths, uh, but also influenced by people like uh, Ken Leach and others. Uh, and, and, and essentially, it's a movement of small communities of young people who really want to get proper training, who want to gather in communities, who want to live this commitment of transformation, but in the world on the streets, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being activists for social justice, you know, working towards building the kingdom of God, one friendship, one person at a time. Great. A- Adam, uh, thank you so very much uh, for your, your work and, and your service. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm sure there's people listening in right now 
who are thinking, how can I help? Uh, how can I support it financially? How can I get involved? Uh, where do they go? Where do they find out more about how they can so, help you and your work? So the work, the work for homeless kids. Um, uh, there's a website called ReciprocityFoundation.org, um, and uh, and that's the website of the foundation. People can get in touch with us, donate, support us financially as well as volunteer. Um, and then for my uh, for my kind of more spiritual work. Um, including have community in new monasticism, people can go to my website, which is adambacco.com. Uh, That's adambucko.com. We'll have that all posted up uh, on our podcast page. Phil, any final points uh, or words you'd like to have? No, I, I well, there's one. Uh, Adam, when <laughs> when you uh, told us your story, did you say that you came, your family came here as undocumented immigrants? Oh, yes. And I just wanted to emphasize that to, to, to sort of point out in this era of people being so antagonistic toward undocumented immigrants, how um, some of you end up making in, incredible contributions to our, our society. So thank you for that. And uh, Well, thank you for that as well, you know. Right. <laughs> is there anything you would like to leave our uh, listeners with? Well, so I just wanted to mention that uh, the HAP community is starting a two-year mentorship program for young people who want to dedicate themselves to this kind of active and contemplative life. Uh, it's starting in the fall. Uh, it's 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 going to be a very in-depth and kind of transformative program that will include a monastic-like commitment, you know, commitment to, to, to being in psychotherapy, to being in spiritual direction, several retreats in two years, lots of one-on-one -on -one guidance, and so if people are interested in that, uh, please get in touch with us. Do you have to be in New York? No, it's, 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 it's international, actually. Very That's good. Fantastic. Uh, you're listening to Spirit Matters Talk, spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Adam Bucko, an activist, spiritual director to many of New York City's homeless. Uh, he's the co-author of Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation, and The New Monasticism, and Inter-Spiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. Please go to uh, uh, look up the ReciprocityFoundation.org. Uh, uh, is it the ReciprocityFoundation.org or Reciprocity? It's just ReciprocityFoundation.org. Okay. Thank That's you so right. very much for your time, Adam. Thank you. Thanks, Adam.